Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Uh, my name is Alex Grauman. I am the Torrance campus pastor around here at Journey. And by the way, let me greet right now Torrance, who is uh, connecting with us live. So glad that we can be together. Uh, of course, if you're here at Manhattan Beach, great to see you in person. Thanks for being at church. And then if anybody's watching this online, well, if, I know there are people watching this online. If that's you, thanks for uh, tuning in. Thanks for connecting with us that way. Uh, so glad that you're checking it out. I know that some of you are taking this first step of trying to find out what Journey is all about. We'd love to see you in person at one of our campuses sometime soon. Hey, uh, today we are uh, continuing our series that we're calling Backstory 3. If you didn't uh, catch us in the first week, we're calling it Backstory 3 because we've done this kind of series for three straight years in a row. And the series is all about looking at stories from the Old Testament of the Bible that'll help us connect better with Jesus. Jesus, when he was doing his ministry on earth, uh, this was his Bible. The Old Testament was the Bible that he used to connect with God, to grow in his connection with God. And so we're uh, echoing that and being faithful to him uh, by looking at the Bible that, that he knew. He talked about many of these stories, used them in his own preaching and teaching. Uh, and so we, we're looking back at some stories that he loved that will help us connect more with him and in our connection with God. Uh, today, we are going to be looking and learning about the story of an Old Testament prophet named Elijah. Elijah, uh, his job was to be a prophet of God, which meant that his role was to bring God's messages and deliver them to God's people. Uh, He lived in the year about 900 BC, so this is definitely an ancient story uh, that you can find in the the Bible book of 1 Kings. Uh, Now, before Elijah's time, several hundred years before, God had allowed his people, Israel, to have kings, and some of their first kings did a pretty good job. First there was Saul, and then right after him was King David, probably the most famous of the kings of Israel. David is the same guy who uh, killed Goliath in that fight, David and Goliath. Uh, He grew up to be the king of Israel, helped people come closer to God in their connection with him. The whole nation went well under his rule. Uh, And then actually David wrote a a big chunk of the Bible book that we call Psalms, a book of poetry, beautiful worship poetry of giving praise to God. Uh, After King David, his son Solomon became king, also a famous name. Solomon was famous as being the most wise person uh, of that time and ruled really well. Again, helped people grow in their relationship with God, uh, ended up writing himself a few uh, big chunks of Bible books. Uh, he wrote uh, a lot of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and also Song of Songs or Sol- Solomon. If you haven't read that, it's the spiciest book in all of the Bible. I definitely recommend it. Um, after Sol- well, Actually, while Solomon was ending his reign, though, he allowed himself to indulge, use his power to indulge his own desires. Ended up marrying o- over 500 women uh, and uh, allowing the beginning of idol worship to come into Israel. And uh, in addition to that, he really heavily taxed his people, oppressively so, uh, so that when he was done being king, uh, the the nation actually split in rebellion uh, against his taxation, split into two different countries, two different nations. The southern kingdom became known as Judah, and their line, their succession of kings was kind of a mix, where some of them did a good job of bringing their people towards God. Others of those kings did a pretty bad job. That was the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel. And that country did absolutely terrible. Every single one of their kings went against God's commands and led their people farther and farther away from God. It's in that kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, that Elijah 
Isaiah was born, and again, lived around the year 900 BC. It was a tough time to be a prophet of God because his messages that he had for the king of his time were usually not positive. Uh, In fact, Elijah lived during the reign of the worst king of them all, the most dramatically evil king that Israel ever had. Here's his name, King Ahab. And I put verses here because these two really had it out for each other. These two really were at odds. Again, Elijah was a prophet of God. He wanted to bring the worship of the one true God back to his people. Ahab was going in just the opposite direction. He was purposely disobedient to God. Uh, He married a a wife named Jezebel from a foreign nation uh, to build political ties with them. And Jezebel brought with her a really big move towards idol worship uh, in the nation of Israel. And it was was overall a very bad situation. Uh, These two really could be described as considering each other arch nemesis. Uh, Have you ever had an arch nemesis? Uh, Maybe they're with you this morning. That would be great. Um, uh, I did. Let me tell you about my arch nemesis. When I was in seventh grade, I had an important arch nemesis named Roberto. Uh, I don't know what happened with Roberto. Roberto, if you're listening, I'd be interested to hear your part of the story and how you're doing. Uh, But in seventh grade, I, in my middle school, had joined the track and field team. Uh, Now, some of you who know me well know that outdoor sports is not who I actually am, but I didn't know that back in middle school, so I was on the track team. And good news, my track team was absolute garbage. We were horrible in every way. Uh, We never won a single track meet, and we had kind of a sloppy approach. That fit me really well, this sloppy approach, um, where you just got to do whatever you want, and then when it was time for a a meet, we would just sign up for the events we wanted to compete in. In fact, that was what (laughs) stuck out to me the most about Roberto. I remember me and my kind a loser friend standing around during a practice one time, and off in the distance was Roberto, and he was practicing in order to get better at the event he had signed up for. And I really, I remember us saying, who does he think he is? That's not what we do around here, <laughs> is intentionally practice to improve in our sport. We were horrible. That was, that was a disconnect already with Roberto. We obviously had different perspectives on uh, sports. <laughs> but what made it worse is that one day after practice, he came up to me and my loser friends, and he said, uh, he said, you guys are dumb, which we were. And then he said, you guys are bad at track, which we were. It was understandable, his critique. And then he said, I, Roberto, he didn't, probably didn't say Roberto, I run hurdles. I am a hurdler. And you guys are not hurdlers. And I don't know why, but that really stung. (laughs) Just his tone of voice. We were like, how dare he say that we are not hurdlers? Now, we weren't hurdlers. I mean, it was obvious that that everything he was saying was true. But he didn't have to be so mean about it. So we resolved that day two things. First, he he was my arch nemesis from that moment on. And second, me and my little group of friends, we resolved that we would immediately sign up and... Uh, compete in hurdles at the next track meet. So we marched over to our coach and we wrote all of our name down on the sheet. Uh, Now the problem was, this was the second to last day of the season. The the final track meet of the season was the next day after school. Um, So we didn't have a lot of time to become great hurdlers. Um, But I went home and I practiced. And I practiced. And mentally, I practiced this, this idea of becoming a great hurdler. And I went to bed that night fairly confident that I was going to crush Roberto. Um, and so woke up that next morning ready to go, ready for my track meet. I, I don't know if I was any more prepared. But anyway, got to the end of the school day and I put on my 
I don't even know what his t-shirt and shorts probably is all I could muster, went out to the track meet itself. People were already getting ready. And my coach with his clipboard was like, oh, boy, I'm so glad you're here, Alex. It's great. You're the only one left signed up for hurdles. It turned out that all of my buddies, after I had gone home the night before, snuck back and crossed their names off of the list so they wouldn't have to compete. They, they abandoned me, really. I was the only one left. Now, a little bit of good news, maybe you've caught this. The coach said I was the only one yet signed up. Even Roberto had not signed up for hurdles that day. I think he got the flu or something. Uh, and so... <laughs> I backed out too. (laughs) I said, sorry coach, I scratched my name off and I have yet to this day never run uh, hurdles in my life. Um, (laughs) Now, when I think of this Bible story, story, Elijah versus Ahab, it's very similar to my rivalry with, uh, with Roberto in some ways. Mostly we had different perspectives on life, but there is one, at least one significant difference. My ultimate showdown with Roberto didn't actually happen. When it comes to Elijah and Ahab, theirs certainly did happen. They came from different perspectives, but the story we're going to read today is their face-to-face, head-to-head showdown, and it is extremely dramatic. If you'd like to read this on your own, here is the chapter where it's from. Again, I mentioned it, 1 Kings 18 tells the story of these guys getting to their final track meet, getting to this moment where they are face-to-face battling it out. Now, what's interesting about this showdown is what we'll learn is that it, neither of these guys are the winner. It's neither Ahab nor Elijah that comes out the winner as much as God himself comes out the winner. God himself shows up to the showdown in an incredible way, even surprising uh, with his the dramatic way he shows up. Even Elijah was surprised, had never seen anything like it in his life. And so the message that we're going to learn is so God-centric today. And here's, here's what it is. It's about God's power. We're going to learn this main point. We can experience the awesome power of the one true God. Elijah himself is not going to be our hero today. God is going to be the hero as he enters this story in such a dramatic fashion in order to get us to realize that we can still experience an echo of that. We can experience the fullness of God's power in our lives. We need that. We are going through as a culture, as a people, challenging things. We need God's power, the God of love and forgiveness to work miracles in our lives. Now, all of that showdown takes place in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, but it's helpful to know what happens in chapter 16 and 17, the run-up to this story. Like I said, Ahab was ruling in this nation. He was supposed to be directing people towards the one true God. He was doing just the opposite. In fact, like I said, married uh, this famously evil woman, Jezebel, uh, who, who brought in specifically the primary idols that they worshipped had these names, Baal and Asherah. Baal was a foreign idol. Uh, he was the god of rain and storms and fertility. And Asherah was a mother goddess. And she was worshipped with these ornate trees or poles that people would set up and eventually did set up all over the nation of Israel to worship Asherah. Um, they went beyond just worshipping these two, though. Uh, Ahab made a decree, uh, made it so that in the land of Israel, he actually turned things around. He said, actually, anybody left who's worshiping the one true God, that God is actually the idol. 
Now we're going to consider Baal and Asherah real gods and anyone who worships that old God of Israel, they are the idol worshipers and we're going to destroy them. He and Jezebel put together a campaign of rounding up the followers of the true God in order to kill them. So that was priests and prophets and anyone else who was a follower, they were on a murder spree of destroying these people. They wanted to get uh, Israel completely away from the God that had established it. And that's why we get to this review of Ahab in the Bible. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. Even in the Bible, this is a terrible review to have in the Bible. Um, He was the worst of the worst. Elijah, at that point, was inspired by God to bring a message of consequence. Since you have moved away from God, God is going to perform a miracle to get your attention. Here's what Elijah's message was. Elijah said, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Basically, the consequence of Ahab's action was that God allowed a drought to cover the land. The intention was that Ahab would wake up, would say, oh my gosh, God is real, especially because, I hope you're catching this, it's meant to be not just random consequence, but very poignant. Remember, Baal, the idol god, was supposed to be the god of rain and storms. And this is the true God saying, yeah, right, I'm the one who gets to decide when rain comes and when it doesn't. He stops up the rain to specifically point out that Baal is powerless. Now, unfortunately, Ahab only goes farther in the wrong direction, becomes more disobedient, continues that trend of wanting to kill the followers of the true God. And Elijah has to flee for his life. He goes into hiding for three years. Um, But it's within those, it's at the end of those three years where God comes back to Elijah. And he says, Elijah, I have a big message that I want you to bring to Ahab. After all this time that he's hated you, uh, it's time to bring him another message. And actually, that brings us to our first of three steps that we need to take. If we want to experience God's power the way Elijah is about to, we need to do this as step number one. We need to start with obedience. Our ability to allow God to move in our life the way he would desire is contingent not on our perfection, not on our goodness, not on our righteousness, but instead on our willingness to be humble and let God do what God does. We need to start by obeying him from a humble heart. We see that I want you to imagine, because here, let me, let me read you the next section of the story. Imagine Elijah's feeling during this part. Remember, three years he'd been on the run in hiding for his life. In the third year of that drought, though, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. Now, that's good news for the land, because rain will come, but you've been on the run from King Ahab hiding for three years. This is the last message you want to get from God, that now it's time to go back and face him head to head. This must have been terrifying. It's it's God saying to Elijah, listen, I know you think this is dangerous. I know this is difficult and scary, but I want you to obey me. And here's the very next verse in sequence. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Elijah hears from God and he immediately obeys. 
Now, we are not going to be challenged probably in the same way to prophetically bring his messages in that way, but the obedience that we can muster in response to God's direction is the starting spark, the beginning key to letting God show his power in our lives. Now, for we need to know, any of us in the room, the original, the foundational direction, guidance that God is giving us has its absolute full root in God's love. God's command to us is that we would love him and love others and experience his forgiveness through his son Jesus. So everything that God wants you to do, if you're like, I don't know what God wants of me, that's what he wants of you. He wants you to connect with him in a relationship. He wants you to receive his loving forgiveness in your life. And after that, by the way, the entire Christian experience, our whole lives, is continuing to build on his guidance to be more loving towards him, more loving towards others who haven't experienced that forgiveness and love yet, more loving uh, in in anything that we do or say or feel in our lives. Uh, It is a life of becoming more like Jesus. It is a life of obedience. That, that we need to take seriously. In fact, I, I want to give this as the action point for our first step here. This week, you need to recognize one opportunity to do the right thing and obey God by doing it. We are not talking generally about right and wrong as obtuse uh, ideas that are out there. We're saying God is the God of the right, the, the correct thing. And so we will head in his direction. Um, I guarantee you, now that I've just read this, you will hit a point. Sometime during this week, you will hit a moment and it will strike you where you'll say, "Uh uh-oh, I have a choice to do the easy, comfortable thing or the correct thing. And I need to obey God and do the correct thing. It's not gonna be as comfortable, not gonna be as easy, but God is challenging us to begin being guided by his love the same way Elijah did. And let's continue our story. Remember, Elijah's been in hiding, running from the king for three years. Finally, he's headed back towards Ahab. A messenger sees him coming and brings the news to Ahab that Elijah's on his way. And here's Ahab and Elijah's first interaction after three years. When Ahab saw Elijah, he exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. It's kind of like a tense, <laughs> caustic first interaction. It's like, your fault. No, it's your fault. I mean, it's these two guys who are pointing at each other. And what, what Elijah is doing, though, is he is definitely referencing the fact that this is way beyond their personal squabbles. The problem isn't really between Elijah, I'm sorry, King Ahab and Elijah. It's between King Ahab and God and what, he, what his responsibility as the king of God's people was supposed to be up to. Finally, though, Elijah proposes the showdown. Here's what he says. He says, now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. Jezebel. He's saying there's gonna be a showdown. It's gonna be 850, all of your evil guys versus me. 
It's going to be a public display. This Mount Carmel thing is we're all going to gather at a public spot. Actually, some of you know this, but my wife and I got the opportunity this year, maybe six months ago, four months ago, to go to Israel and take a tour of some of these holy sites. One of the sites we got to visit was Mount Carmel. If you go there today, it's still a mount. Uh, you go up there, and there you are. And on, the, on this site where this probably happened is a statue. Look at him. He's looking great. Elijah there on the statue. Um, and he, it commemorates this moment. Now, more than just seeing a statue, it was really impactful for me to look from the top of Mount Carmel out at the valley. This is the Valley of Jezreel. This is just as visible as it would be looking down the mountain is very similar to how the people of Israel could look up and say, oh, we know where that is. So when Elijah says, we are gathering for this showdown on Mount Carmel, people are like, it was an opportunity because everyone knew where that was. It would be like for us today saying, hey, we're having a showdown, it's going to be at the Hollywood sign. Even if you've never been there, you know how to get there. You, you know it's kind of that way. I don't know which direction I'm pointing, but it's over there, and we will walk there because it was a familiar spot. He's saying we, this is going to be a public spectacle. All Israel is invited. In fact, that's key. When the people of Israel show up to be spectators, Elijah does this odd thing. He talks directly beyond, over the head of King Ahab, he talks to the people. There is more at stake in Elijah's mind than just him having a showdown with King Ahab. Look at what he says. They're all gathered there. Elijah stood in front of the people and said, how much longer will you waver? Hobbling between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. It it turns out that the main issue that Elijah wanted to challenge the people with was apathy, was a heart that had grown cold. They lived in a country they knew was supposed to be devoted to God, and yet they had seen idol worship seep into their world. They had seen this campaign to murder the priests and prophets of the one true God, and they had done nothing. They had remained silent. Elijah is asking them to wake up, to take a stand, to make a difference. They were sitting on the fence in there. Now, not not many of them, I'm sure, would say, I have purposely disobeyed God. I have purposely, I have been personally responsible for murdering people. They probably wouldn't have said that, but they would have said, yeah, I didn't really do anything about it. I didn't really change my behavior based on what was happening and what my life was doing. The challenge, if we want to see God's power, the challenge that Elijah is trying to bring to these people is this. It's the same for us today. We need to get off the fence and devote ourselves to God. Now, this is one of two parts in this message that I want to make absolutely clear. This is an ancient story in a very particular culture and place in the world. The message for us today here in the year, what is it, 2023, uh, in the South Bay, is not, oh man, the world out there is so horrible. We, you're right, we have been on the fence. We've allowed the culture to get to the, I need to become a warrior against culture. Listen, we should stand up for righteousness. We should stand up and be peacemakers. We should stand up and help when there is injustice happening in the world. But today, that's not what the message is about. Today, I want you to look inside to say, where have I been sitting on the fence and allowed sin not to infiltrate the culture, that's the culture's fault, where have I allowed it to infiltrate me? Where I have been apathetic enough that I've allowed the seeping in a behavior that is not okay. 
I was thinking and praying about some examples of this. The two that came to mind this week were, I think we have allowed in our, in our own lives untruth to seep in. We have been more comfortable with a bending of truth that none of us are like, I love to lie, but when it comes to my resume, yeah, if some of those things are a little bit aggrandized, hey, nobody notices what's the harm. Or yeah, I'm gonna log 40 hours of work, but some of that's from home and I was just kinda thinking about work and that must count, right? And so really where I should put 36 hours, um, who's gonna care, I'll put 40. We have this comfort level with things that are not ethical. Listen, let me change it to the opposite. We need to be people of integrity. Obedience to God would mean getting off the fence and being people of integrity, where we would notice, not about someone else, we would notice about ourselves, hey, I've let this thing, I've become too lax in this circumstance. The other example that came to mind this week is pride, selfishness, self-focus. I do this all the time, where I'm like, man, I know I have responsibilities to my work and my family and my kids and my neighbors, but I, I need some me time. Now, is me time always bad? No, not at all. But is me time the number one priority when it comes to what God has called me to? No, it is not. I need to let God change the way I operate so that the me time is, is really fulfilling when I'm helping someone else, when I'm serving my family, when I'm loving the people around me in a way that will show them Jesus. I know that goes against our Western values, and that's okay. That me time, the best me time, would be them time. Um, let, me, let me put it this way in an action step. We need to recognize where you've become lax. So not even yet sinful, just okay, and then we need to move towards what is right. God is calling us to stop sitting on that fence and to wake up, not to be silent about the things that we're wrestling with and instead actually wrestle with them. Hey, finally, by the way, we've reached the point of the story where the showdown takes place. Elijah, on that mountain, describes how they're gonna go head to head. Here's how he describes it. Elijah said to everybody gathered, now, bring two bowls. Bowls were a traditional expensive sacrifice that they were going to burn as a sign uh, to their gods of honoring their gods. The prophets of Baal, they can choose whichever one of the bowls that they wish, cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood on their altar, but without setting fire to it. I, oh, can you go back real quick to the last one? I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood on the other altar, but not set fire to it. Now let's go to the next one. Then, You call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. They're like, that's going to happen? Sure. We're up for this showdown. This will be crazy. I mean, so Elijah, graciously maybe, lets the prophets of of Baal and Asherah go first. They build a stone altar. They put wood on top. They put their bowl on the top of it, and they begin to cry out to their God. They begin to worship and to dance. Now again, this is not a small group of people. This is 850 people. This is the largest worship service that they had probably seen in generations. Worshiping and calling out to Baal. Now Elijah steps back. He knows there is no Baal. This is a false god. They are worshiping nothing at all. So he is not worried that their god will respond because there's no one to respond. In fact, he's had it by the time kind of midday rolls around. Here's what he said. Here's what happens. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You're going to have to shout louder. He scoffed. Surely he is a god. 
perhaps he's daydreaming or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep. He needs to be wakened. I mean, he is really going out here. And that idea that maybe your God can't hear, maybe he's in the bathroom. Just talk louder. Maybe you can get him. He's doing his business is what the ancient Hebrew originally says. Maybe he's doing his business. Um, this infuriates them and they go for broke. They, their worship becomes even more foul and profane and destructive, crying out until evening time. But then it is incredibly blunt and well-written in the scriptures. Here's the review of the day. There was still no sound, no reply, no response. Again, I actually love the the more literal translation of the ancient Hebrew would be no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. I like this because it shows they are calling to no one. Listen, we... This goes against every important value that we have as human beings. We don't need no one. We need someone. We are people of relationship and connection. Our greatest desires is to be known and in relationship and that there would be someone there. These people are barking up the wrong tree. They're barking up a tree to nowhere where there's no one who cares. It does not matter how fervent, how passionate, how emotional worship is, if there is nothing to receive that worship, then it's worthless. There's no one. No one will pay attention. And now I know that after church, you're not going to be tempted to put up an idol and dance around it with profane worship. That's not our temptation. But we have plenty of metaphorical idols in our lives. I've already mentioned comfort and selfishness. Uh, We have lusts. We have issues of, of greed. We have these things that we're like, a success becomes our idol. Being known uh, by famously is our idol. Uh, Being competitively better than someone else is an idol. Listen, those things, even if you were to succeed in them, they do not care about you. They are no one. There's nobody there. You'll get to a place of success and you will be alone because success is an idol. We need to follow the true God and sometimes he calls us into humility and smallness to be honored by him. That's the way of our God. After this whole thing goes on, Elijah's like, you guys have been talking to nobody. It's my turn. I know somebody. He does this odd thing where instead of building his own altar, he actually finds an altar that was broken. It was originally for God. Ahab destroyed it. He rebuilds this small altar of stone. He puts his wood on it. He puts his bowl, preps his bowl on top of it. And then he's like, you know what? I have one more step. He calls over some friends and has them dig a trench around the altar. And the people of Israel are like, this is weird. Baal's altar didn't have a trench. What's he doing? Then he calls more friends over and has them bring bring four large jars of water and pour it over the whole thing. All four jars. And then he's like, that's not enough. Do it again. They pour the four jars again, full of water, drenching the thing. He's like, one more time. One third time, they pour the water on top. And then he's like, everybody stand back. And in stark contrast to 850 people dancing in profane worship, only he, only him alone, stands there and brings a humble, quiet prayer to God. Here's his prayer before the Lord. Oh Lord, Elijah says, prove today you're the God of Israel, that I'm your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back 
to yourself. This small, this humble prayer is all God needs, a simple invitation. (laughs) The very next verse, God arrives in force. Look at this. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven, burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and even the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. God does this incredible miracle, undeniable miracle in these people's lives. When I was on Mount Carmel, I took a picture of the statue and then I remembered this part of the story and I was like, wait a minute. And I just pointed up, took a picture of the sky just in case there was fire that day. No fire in the sky that day. Uh, I just thought that'd be funny. Um, This is not the end of the story. Real quick. Elijah goes further. Remember, back at the beginning, Ahab had made a rule that if you worship a false god, which he labeled the god of Israel, you have to be round up and killed. Elijah says, hey, buddy, I just proved that you had it backwards. God is alive. Your gods, the idol gods, were the ones that are fake. I'm going to use your rule against you. And here's what happened. Uh, Elijah commanded, well, then, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all. Again, they're not being apathetic anymore. And Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and had them killed there, or killed them there. It is a brutal, a dramatic ending to what already was a strange story in our modern Western sensibilities. Here's the other place. Remember I said there were gonna be two places where I wanted to emphasize this. The message of this story. This is an ancient story. This is an important, unique time in the history of God's people. The message from the story isn't like, oh good, the world is a terrible, dangerous, sinful place. Let's go kill them all. That kind of violent message is abhorrent. It could not be farther from what God wants for us. Instead, let me remind you to take this inside. The problem right now is not out there. The problem that we're wrestling with today, we have plenty of that problem right here. I mean internally, I'm talking about myself. Wait, all of us, okay? No, just don't turn on me. Here's what we need to do, okay? We need to turn the tables on sin. Elijah used this this rule the the king had already made and turned the tables on those evil prophets, he does the same thing. He says, hey, I'm gonna use, listen, right now in many of our lives, sin thinks it's winning. Sin thinks it has found home in you. Not just it's allowed to be here, but it's celebrated. We have made it a grand place for it to reside and to flourish. It is time to Flip those tables. Turn the tables. Surprise sin by the way we expose it to the light of God. Maybe that means talking with a Christian friend, a a brother or sister in faith, and saying, I have this problem that I've been hiding. I need to be accountable to someone about it. I know that God forgives me, but I need to expose it so that we can work on it together with that kind of accountability. We have to stop this idea that sin is okay as long as it's hidden. It's time to root it out, turn the tables on sin. That is such a big key that third step for experiencing God's power. In fact, let me, let me, let's review what we've talked about today. And then we're gonna close with communion. So this is the point where you also see the bands loading for communion. We can experience the awesome power of the one true God. How? At least these three steps, we need to start with being obedient. We need to get off the fence and devote ourselves to God. And we need to turn the tables on sin. This is a challenging thing to do, but we have to understand that the entire thing rests on God's power, not our own.